The scripture is found in Mark 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel of Mark is the first written account we've got of the life of Jesus. Now, why did Mark write the life of Jesus down? Or, for that matter, why did Matthew, Luke, and John do the same thing? For about 30 years or so after the uh, life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, There were no written accounts. Uh, The gospel of Jesus Christ was spread orally. It was spread verbally. And one of the reasons why there weren't any written accounts was that it was difficult for uh, it was difficult for any distortions of who Jesus really was, any distorted accounts of who Jesus really was, to take hold. It was hard because of the presence of eyewitnesses. So, for example, in um, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writing to the church at Corinth just about 15 years, 20 years after the death of Jesus. He's writing to a church, and he's talking about the resurrection in that chapter, and he's talking about how, uh, what the resurrection means and how it happened. And then he lists the people who actually saw the risen Christ. And at one point, he even says there were 500 people to whom Jesus Christ appeared at once, and he says, most of them are still alive. If you want to, if you want to uh, ask them, go ahead and talk to them. They're still there. In other words, what Paul was saying was that within the first two, three decades after the life and death of Christ, it was very difficult for someone just to make up things about Jesus because so many people were around who were actually there, who knew him. You couldn't just say, for example, you couldn't say, oh, yeah, Jesus Christ. He used to fly through the air between preaching engagements. You know, he was divine, so he could fly through the air. Because there were too many people around who said, no, I lived there, I was there, that didn't happen. But about one generation after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the apostles were starting to die off and when the eyewitnesses were starting to die off, then arose the problem or the danger that people could decide who Jesus, who they wanted Jesus to be. They could make up a Jesus of their own. They, 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 you could lose touch with the real Jesus. And therefore, the Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, gospel writers began to pull together the accounts of the apostles, the eyewitness accounts, and they turned them into these uh, lives of Jesus, these books that we have in front of us. So, for example, uh, Luke, at the very beginning of his book, says this to his reader, Theophilus, who was uh, a person of means that he had written his gospel for. And Luke says this, As others have drawn up an account of the things that happened among us, as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses, 
So I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. So what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did was they took eyewitness accounts, wove them together so that we could have the real Jesus, not a Jesus we make up, not a Jesus of our own, but the real Jesus as he actually was, what, what he actually really said, what he really did. Now, we need that today desperately, and here's one of the reasons why. Uh, when I even, even when I came here to New York in the 80s even, there wasn't much interest in Jesus. Jesus was old hat. Jesus was been there, done that. Jesus was, uh, you know, over. Uh, religion was over. And in the educated cultural centers, there wasn't a great deal of interest in Jesus, but boy, that's changed. There's been an explosion in the last decade or so of spirituality, and, and everybody's interested in Jesus, but on their own terms. And yet here's the irony. A Jesus that you shape, a Jesus that you make up that fits in with your desires, a Jesus of your own, ironically, can't really change you, can't really transform you, because a Jesus that you make up can't challenge you, can't contradict you. Why? Because he's just you, you know. You made him. So the irony is a Jesus that you create that doesn't have his own reality can't really change, renew, and transform you. If you want a Jesus that can really help you, if you want a Jesus that really can spiritually change you, you've got to get the real Jesus. And boy, that's what you have here. In fact, I, I, I have to say this carefully, in some ways Mark of the four Gospels might be the best place to go to really get the naked, unadulterated, undistilled, straight-up real Jesus, because the, uh, all the other gospel, gospels are longer. You know, Mark is the shortest, and they're all a lot longer, and, uh, uh, because they, they, they talk more about Jesus. So, for example, look at how Mark starts versus the other dis- gospels. Matthew starts with the genealogy, a lot of prologue, who is Jesus, what are his roots, Where is it? who's his family. Luke starts with a prologue about Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. It's all very interesting. Uh, and John, go to the Gospel of John, starts at creation of the world. Okay, big thinker, you know. He's a big picture guy, I guess. But Mark starts right in on Jesus. Boom. In fact, not only don't you have much teaching about Jesus and commentary about Jesus, you don't even have much teaching by Jesus in the book of Mark. Mark just wants to give you Jesus, his character, his actions, And that's why, because we are in the midst of a culture that desperately needs the real Jesus, and because that is what this book is written to give us, a Jesus that can change our lives, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark for quite a while, over the next few months, actually. Now, right in the beginning, I said, you know, uh, Mark is a man who minces few words. Right away, he tells us who Jesus is. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He says so. He's Christ. Well, now, that doesn't help us much, does it? <laughs> because for you and me, Jesus and Christ are synonyms, right? If I say Jesus, if I say Christ, you know, you know it's one, you know, it's, it's the same, right, to you and me, but not originally, because Jesus was the man's name, but Christ, Christos, meant the anointed king. Jesus, according to Mark, the real Jesus is the king. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, next statement, the Son of God. Well, even that is a little bit 
perhaps not precise, because surely in the Bible, sons of God can also be people, just human beings who have great God consciousness and Christ-like and God-likeness. Yes. In fact, can't the term sons of God also refer to angels? Weren't angels called sons of God? Yes. So how do you know that Jesus isn't just a, a great human king or, or a, uh, you know, a, a one of many angelic beings? Mark here in these first eight verses gets right down to who this king is. And we're told three things. The king's come, who he is. The king's school, how you can meet him in the wilderness. And the king's cross, where he's going. The king's come, who he is. The king's school, where you meet him. And the king's cross, where he's going. Right away. Mark doesn't mince words. So, number one. First of all, let me show you who Mark says this king is. Verse 3, it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Verse 3, a voice of one crying in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, this is a bombshell. This is an absolute bombshell in history, in literature. Isaiah 40, quotation, of a prophecy by Isaiah that said, someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. Go back to Isaiah 40, and you can read it in its entirety sometime. Someday the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem and show the nations his glory. And a messenger will call out and prepare the way before him. That's the prophecy. Mark identifies the messenger with John the Baptist And that means Mark identifies the Lord, who is coming, of Isaiah 40, with Jesus. Now, you say, what's the big deal about that? I'll tell you what the big deal about that is. If you go back into the Hebrew passage itself, the word translated in our English Bible, Lord, is the word Yahweh. It's the personal covenant name that God gave to Moses, revealed to Moses in the burning bush. It's the personal name of the covenant God that the Jews consider so holy that you didn't, they didn't speak it, they didn't write it. And Mark is saying, Yahweh of Israel, creator God of the universe, ruler and rightful ruler and judge of all the earth, has come to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Do you know what a bombshell this is? Do you know, for example, this is the end of philosophy, you know that? Let me give you a little quick nutshell on the history of philosophy. All of philosophy has been a battle back and forth between which is more, which is more important, the real or the ideal? Huh? Particulars or universals? The many or the one? Hmm? Rationalism, empiricism. See? Postmodernism, modernism. See? Uh, Aristotle, Plato. Which is it? The ideal or the real? But in Jesus Christ, we're told... That's all over. We don't have to worry about that anymore. The ideal has become real. The ideal has become real. The metaphysical has become physical. The immortal has become mortal. The, uh, the unapproachable is something you can hug, someone you can hug. The uh, totally invulnerable has become radically vulnerable. The impossible has become possible. Unlike Hinduism and Buddhism, who say God is the divine spark in all of us, and therefore the incarnation of the divine into the human is happening all the time and is just constant, 
and unlike Judaism and Islam that say, no, 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 God is so transcendent that the incarnation of the divine and the human is utterly impossible. Contrary to all of them, Christianity says that God is so transcendent that the incarnation is certainly not constant, but God is so loving and so intent on our salvation that he did break through the concrete wall between the ideal and real, and he was incarnated once uniquely in Jesus Christ. And therefore, God become human in Jesus Christ is the universe-sundering, history-altering, worldview-shattering, life-transforming event that sets Christianity off from every other religion and every other view and every other philosophy on the face of the earth. And you say, Ooh, wow, whew, okay, but I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. And so many New Yorkers have said something like this over the years, and maybe you're feeling this right now. You say, look, primitive people were different. They could believe this idea of the divine become human. Look, I can understand the idea of Jesus being a very great teacher and having a sort of divine consciousness about him and all that sort of thing. But look, I'm a contemporary, modern, sophisticated person. And there's too many intellectual and cultural barriers for me to believe that. Here's what the book of Mark is saying to you. Would you please keep in mind that all the original worshipers of Jesus Christ, all the original believers in Jesus Christ were Jews, including Mark. And they had far more cultural and intellectual barriers to believing that a God could become a human being than you do. Far more. I said they wouldn't, the name Yahweh, they wouldn't speak the name, they wouldn't write the name. That's true to this day with Orthodox Jews. The idea that God could become a human being was absolutely, antithetically, utterly opposed to everything they'd ever been taught about reality, everything they ever knew, everything about their culture, their intellect. It was against all of that. Their barriers were far greater than yours to believing this, and yet they did. Something shattered those barriers. And you say, what was that? And Mark says, I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to show it to you. It's what he said, how he acted, what he did. See, Mark says we original believers in Jesus had far more problems with this idea of God becoming flesh than you do. But something broke through all that. That was your, it was Jesus' life. And I'm going to show you. I'm going to give it to you, says Mark. So read on. Quite an introduction. And if you let it, if you let it come in, in other words, if you believe that God became human in Jesus Christ, and I don't just mean believe it the kind of nominal way that people believe it if you're raised in a church and every week you hear, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Lord. You know, If you really take this truth into the center of your being and let it catch fire there, it will change you. How? Well, you know, the rest of the book of Mark, we're going to be looking at all that, but you know what? Let me give you three just now, let me give you three ways that the truth that God became human, if you let it really come into the center of your life, will change you. It will. Number one, I believe that it can change the drive shaft of your heart. Now, I, what I mean by that is I think that most, I think we all have a basic motivational drive. There, there's, every human heart's got some basic motivational drive that gets us out of bed in the morning, that gets us through the life, that moves us to do what we do. And I think for most of us, I think it's fear. You know, after years of living and years of pastoring and years of being around people, I think it's fear. The need 
a fear of missing out, the fear of not proving ourselves, the fear of, of not living up. Now, the religions of the world just aggravate that fear because for all the religions of the world, God is out there and up there, out there and up there, and we have to reach him. And, of course, every religion tells us how. If you want to reach the divine, Buddhism says eightfold path. Islam says five pillars. Judaism says the Ten Commandments. You know, Confucianism says filial piety and all that, in, that it entails. That's how you can reach. But you see what? That just increases the fear because all of your life, why are you reaching the divine? Because you don't want to lose the divine. You don't want to miss the divine. You don't want to fall short of the divine. And, you can, and so it's fear that drives you out toward it. But the incarnation... God become flesh. The incarnation means, according to Christianity, that God has come to us, that he's come close, that he has given himself to us, and that it's possible, therefore, to have a heart that knows that we have God and, therefore, wants to live a life out of gratitude and grateful joy and love, not out of fear. Not out of fear we're going to miss God. Not out of fear we're going to be rejected by God. But out of gratitude and love that we have him. Because by his own initiative, he has come to us. Because he knows we could never reach him. We, he knows we could never make, we, we, we could never attain to him. So first of all, I think the incarnation, the doctrine of the incarnation, can actually change the drive shaft of your life from fear to grateful joy, a whole new way of doing everything, a whole new reason for doing everything. Secondly, it's a tremendous resource for suffering. Uh, What do I mean by that? If you really are hurting, you sit down with somebody and you pour your heart out, and if the response is lots of facts, now do this and do this and do this and do this and do this, You know what you should be doing. That's really not much consolation, is it? But if you pour out yourself, your heart, about what's wrong with you, and the other person says, guess what? I went through that very thing. You did? And then with that person, if he or she not only shows you that they have been through exactly what you've been through, but far worse, far more intensely, and they tell you the story, and then they say, I'll be with you through what you're going through, That's what we need. Now, there is no religion that says that God has been through anything more intensely than you have except Christianity. You know that that poem by Edward Shillito that goes like this? The other gods did ride. Thou didst stumble to the throne. To our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And no God has wounds but thou alone. No God, that's what you can say to Jesus, no God has wounds but thou alone. No other religion even claims their God has wounds. So it can change the drive shaft of your heart. It, can, uh, it, it gives you an incredible resource for suffering. I mean, this is, I'm just skimming the surface. But thirdly, the incarnation, God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it's a tremendous motivation for peace and justice. You know why? Now, we actually talk so much about this in the fall, I'm just going to give it to you in two or three sentences, but... Jesus Christ means God got a body. He got, he got a material body. And when he died, he was risen, raised from the grave. He wasn't just redeemed spiritually. He was redeemed physically. The incarnation and the resurrection mean that God invented both soul and body and is going to redeem both soul and body. 
The purpose of Christian salvation is not escape from the material world, but the redemption, the renewal, the healing of the material world. And therefore, new heavens and new earth, you know, that's where we're going to go. And therefore, not only salvation of the soul and forgiveness of sins, but fighting disease and poverty and injustice is on the agenda of the salvation of God. When Mark starts off his gospel with this prophecy of Isaiah, he is rooting the gospel of Jesus Christ into the ancient hope of Israel for a king to come someday who would take down every mountain and raise up every canyon and heal the world of all of its disease and brokenness. And Mark is saying, that king, that king has come. The second thing we learn here is that you can meet this king in the wilderness. Now, the whole theme of this chapter, we're going to see this a little bit more next week as well, is that if you're going to find this king, you've got to go out into the wilderness. John the Baptist preaches in the wilderness. The people have to go out and get baptized in the wilderness. We're going to see that Jesus goes out into the wilderness. Now, the word wilderness does not show up in this translation, and that's good. And one of the reasons why it's good is, now, I love the word wilderness. I love the word wilderness because it's got the word wild in it, and I like that. I like the old English way of saying they went out into the wild. Uh, but trouble is, with the word wilderness, is for you and I, living in North America anyway, wilderness means, to you and me, a forest. And that does not get across the biblical meaning of the word, because a forest here in North America is a place teeming with life. It's easy to live in a forest. You know that. My goodness, there's, you can hunt, you can fish, you can grow things. I mean, all you have to do is, you know, find a clearing where the sun comes through the leaves. It's a place teeming with life. But the wilderness, as the Bible defined it, and there's a, a word that shows up several times in this chapter, the word eremos, it's often translated wilderness, but it's better to translate the way this translation translates it, and that is desert. Because the wilderness is a place that cannot sustain life. The wilderness is a place of thorns, Nothing grows. It's a place of thirst. All the wells are dry. There's no bread out there because you can't grow wheat. You can't grow things. It's just thorns. There's no water out there. It's a place of thorns. It's a place of thirst. And it's a place of terrible loneliness because, because it can't support a community. It can't support life. Now, what's important about John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness they have to go out into the wilderness to get baptized, is because, interestingly enough, this is one of the themes of the Bible. Did you know that? That generally speaking, in general, you meet God in the wilderness. The history of Israel, they met God in the wilderness. Where did Moses meet God in the burning bush? The wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? The wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? In Egypt? No. Sinai. That's where they were made the people of God in principle. And in 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they became the people of God in practice. And here's why. Why, did the wilderness, why is the wilderness generally the place where you meet God? The wilderness is a place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God. All the wells go dry, so you have to have the water of God out of the rock. All the bread goes moldy, so you have to have the manna of God. And out in the wilderness, Israel learned what we all have to learn, and that is God is not an add-on. He's not a vitamin supplement. 
apart from the saving intervention of God, you have no hope without God. And that ultimately, all wells run dry except the water of God. All bread goes moldy except the bread of God, the man of God. Okay, you say, what's that got to do with us? Everything. Because the book of Hebrews, which we looked at, by the way, about a year ago, the book of Hebrews says that we, are st- we still meet God in the wilderness. You know what that means? Just as in a literal desert, you come to find out that all wells but God's water go dry and all bread but God's bread molds. So in our lives, we generally only meet God when we go through wilderness experiences. You know what a wilderness experience is? It's when something you have looked to as your real hope. Oh, you may believe in God. You may believe in Christianity. But the real hope of your life the real well, the real bread, the real thing that keeps you alive, the real spiritual life, the real hope, the thing that really makes you feel like a worthwhile person, your real Savior, your real Lord, your real bread and drink runs out. Or you find that it's inadequate. See, C.S. Lewis, in a classic, classic quotation, explains what the wilderness experience is in which we meet God. He says, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning ever really satisfy. I'm not speaking about what ordinarily would be called unsuccessful marriages or trips and so on. I'm talking about the very best possible ones. There's always something that we grasp at in that first moment of longing that always fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a great spouse. The scenery has been excellent. It's turned out to be a pretty good job. But what we were really looking for has evaded us. Here's what it means to really find and meet the king. Not that you decide you're going to get a little bit religious, but that something happens in your life that makes you look at the very foundations of your life and realize that I'm going to die without God. It, it's not my career. It's not my family. It's not my looks. It's not my friends. It's not my achievements. It's not the money. It's none of these things. It's not a great husband. It's not a great wife. It's not great kids. None of these things are ever, ever, ever going to actually make me happy. Every well will run dry except for the water of God. Every bread will go moldy except for the man of God. And when you realize that, and when you realize without the direct intervention of God in my life, I am dead. When and only when you experience that, and you're in the wilderness when you experience that, Can you meet the king? And you know what? Very important here is John the Baptist in his ministry in the wilderness makes this perfectly clear because notice what he says, what it says. He baptized people. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Oh, yes, it was. It was an enormous big deal. Oh, you say, you mean before John the Baptist, there was no such thing as baptism? Well, let me, let's, let's, let's explain Before John the Baptist, there had always been what you might call washings and ablutions and effusions and immersions. The Jews understood that they needed to wash their hands before going in to worship God. It was a way of saying, I need to be cleansed of sin. I have certain uncleanness from my life. And so it was was a kind of ritual for 
of confession and for, for purification of sin. Not only that, but Gentiles that wanted to go into the temple or the tabernacle wanted to worship God, they not only had to wash their hands, they had to pour water all over themselves. They had, they had to immerse themselves or, or there had to be an effusion of, of water all over them because they were Gentiles. They were really unclean. You know, they didn't just wash their hands. They were Gentiles. And so the idea that you washed, the ablutions and effusions and immersions and all that, uh, that you washed in order to make yourself pure from sin and going before God, that was all, it had been done for centuries actually. But get this, and I didn't realize this until I started studying it, you always did it to yourself. Always. The Gentiles did self-immersion. The Jews did self-cleansing. For the first time in history, John the Baptist says, no, I have to baptize you. And all of you, not just Gentiles, Jews, everybody. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter whether you've been a, 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 a Bible scholar or a prostitute. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You are going to have to receive your fitness for this king from the hand of another. I'm going to have to baptize you. Later, Jesus is going to have to baptize you. I'll do it with water. He'll do it with the Holy Spirit. But the point of the matter is you cannot save yourself. And you know what this means? I can, let, me just give you, let me just bring it down home. There's always at Redeemer a layer of people uh, who are searching. And here's why you're searching. Your well has run dry. I'm going to give you a perfect example of this. Let's just say you got into the right schools and you were doing really well and you're on your way and financially you're making pretty good money and you thought, boy, this is going to be great. And then you had some financial reversals, some major financial reversals, and your future is very cloudy and you're in real financial trouble. And guess what happened? You thought that the money was just a nice thing, but now you've come to see that it was the main thing, that you're experiencing a lot of emotional collapse. You can't relate to people. You're having trouble making commitments to anybody else. You're having trouble liking yourself. You're having some really dark thoughts about yourself. You're starting to realize, perhaps, that you didn't want... You said, well, I wasn't even that religious of a person, but yes, you were, because this was your Savior. It was the knowledge that you were savvy and you were smart and you were making a lot of money and you're doing very well. And now that it has gone away, you suddenly realize that you're experiencing major identity meltdown. It was the well. It was your water of life. See, it was your bread of life. And now you realize, I'm empty and I need something. So you start to go to church and you start to come to Redeemer or some other church. And you start to read your Bible and you say, this is what I need. I need God. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to say, well, I'm going to be really good and I'm, going to, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to lie on my income tax anymore and do all the nasty things I was doing to people in order to get ahead and I'm going to really clean up my life. And John the Baptist says, you are still self-saving yourself. You're getting religious instead of not going to church and you're not caring so much about money, you're caring about religion, but you're still trying to baptize yourself. You're still immersing yourself. You're still saving yourself. You haven't really changed your foundation. Let me tell you what happens when you're about to meet the king. Nathan Coles, a Connecticut farmer, had a diary that he kept in the 1740s it's very interesting to historians. They study it all the time because he makes so many interesting references to stuff that social and cultural and historians really like to read. But he became a Christian listening to a sermon by George Whitfield outdoors in Connecticut in 1740. And I've never forgotten his, the words of his account of how he became a Christian. He said, he was, it was in the sermon and he said this. He says, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. 
And by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw that my righteousness could not save me. See, he was in the wilderness. He saw his foundation. He met the king. Now, that's who the king is. And that's the king has come. And secondly, where you meet him, where you prepare, the school of the king is the wilderness. Now, there's one more thing, and again, we don't need to spend much time on this because we're going through the whole rest of the book. But where's this king going? In New York, people don't like to hear about Jesus being king. They love him as a friend. They love him as a, as a lover. They love him as a, you know, they, but, but king sounds very oppressive. And you know what? Even this language sounds oppressive. It's, literally, it says, prepare the way for the king, make straight paths for him. And the word way is the word for road or highway. Now, ancient people hearing this prophecy immediately knew what, was talk, what they were talking about. When a king came to a country, you had to actually build a highway to honor the king. And what it meant was, seen ordinarily back in those days, since no one had you know, modern engineering, ordinarily in those days when you created a road and there was a rock formation there, you just went around the rock formation. And if you got to a canyon, you zigzagged down one end of the canyon, you zigzagged up you know, their canyon. But if you want a straight road for the, for, for the king... You had to bring out, the, take down the rock formations, and you had to bridge the chasms or even fill in the canyons, and that took zillions of slaves. Slaves. So when the king came, it was slavery. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of people that think that if Jesus is the king, that's just oppression. Now I'm going to have to do what he says. I don't like that idea. It sounds like slavery to me. It sounds like oppression to me, but no, because Mark deliberately brings this word up. It's the, it's, the, it's the Greek word hodos, which means the road. Prepare the road for the Lord. Every other place in the book of Mark where the word road is brought up, it means the road to the cross. Every other place where the word road is used in the book of Mark, it's Jesus' road to the cross. Every place he talks about it, every place it's spoken about. What this means is this king does not come to go onto a throne. This king comes to go onto a cross. King's cross. What does that mean to you? Now, if you're British, it means a, a, a neighborhood in London and a railroad station. If you're Australian, it means a neighborhood and a railroad station in Sydney. Isn't that right? There's a King's Cross in Sydney. There's a King's Cross neighborhood in, uh, in London. If you're American, what does King's Cross mean? It's where Harry Potter picks up the train to Hogwarts right? He, he picks up a King's Cross platform number what, class? Class, what number? What? Yes, nine and three quarters. You didn't all know that. Many of you are not keeping up with the evolving Western literary canon. Some of you are very behind. I would like you to consider that the paradoxical term King's Cross is the heart of what the message of Mark is all about. King's cross, do you realize what a paradox that is? Kings go to thrones, not to crosses. As a matter of fact, a cross is the opposite of the throne. A throne is a place of power. A cross is a place of the epitome of powerlessness and helplessness. A person dying on the cross wasn't even allowed to die in private. It was a long, agonizing death, stripped naked for everybody to see 
It was the epitome of helplessness, the opposite of a cross. And Mark is saying here that the kingliness and greatness of Jesus Christ is that rather than go to a throne when he got here, he went to a cross for us. Or put it like this. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate wilderness, a howling wilderness. What was in that wilderness? Thorns. Gone into his head. Thirst. Forsakenness. Aloneness. Jesus Christ went into the ultimate wilderness and lost God so that when you and I go into our little wildernesses, we can find God. Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we can have, by grace, a relationship with God. And what that means is then is that Jesus Christ's kingship is not oppressive because he's not just a king, he's a servant. Jesus Christ's kingship is not oppressive because it brings salvation by grace. And as a result, it's not enslavement, but it's liberation. And that's what changes the drive shaft of the heart. Conclusion. If God has become Jesus... Or put it another way, if Jesus is not just a great human being, but God, and if this God became not a king who goes to a throne, but to a cross for you, how should you respond to him? And here's what I think the only way to to answer that is like this. The only rational responses to that claim are extreme. See, John Stott in uh, his little book, Basic Christianity, is very, very good about this. He says, people who actually met the real Jesus always reacted in an extreme way. If you actually heard the real Jesus, if you actually met the real Jesus, if you really saw what he was saying, you either hated him and tried to wipe him out, or secondly, were scared to death of him and tried to get as far away from him as possible. Or thirdly, you knelt at his feet, and as it were, you laid the sword of your life at his feet and said, command me. You gave your life to him utterly in adoration. But those are the only three rational responses, and they're all extreme. The one thing nobody who ever saw the real Jesus ever did was to say, nice sermon preacher, or very inspiring, or I need to come back. You know, Jesus is not inspiring. He is not inspiring. The only rational responses to the claim that Mark is making about Jesus are extreme responses. Are you rational? You say, well, I want to be an extremist. Oh, my goodness. Being intensely like Jesus won't make you look like an extremist because you'll be intensely gentle. You'd be intensely humble. You'd be intensely loving. You wouldn't look like an extremist to people, but you would be an extremist because... You either have to hate him or you have to be scared to death of him or you have to give him absolutely everything and there is no other rational response. Are you rational tonight? Are you in your right mind tonight? Do you know the real Jesus? Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, helping us see the reality of, of who your son is. The Lord's Supper is a time in which we get something real in our hands. We get the cup, we get the bread. Uh, We get the presence of Jesus, and we ask, Lord, that you would uh, continue to show us who your Son really is, really, and shape us with that as we study your Word and seek the truth of who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.